Good morning, Foothills. How we doing? I uh, want to thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, my name is Eric Reed. I also want to thank the Knoxville campus for joining and uh, being a part today. Um, wow. So uh, it's been a privilege to be here. I'm thankful for uh, Pastor Trent inviting uh, me to come and to share with you guys. I'm from Nashville, and uh, so I'm not too far down the road. Uh, I lead a church there called the Journey Church, very similar to you guys in a lot of ways. And then I also lead a ministry called Knowing Jesus Ministries. We have uh, tons of resources for discipleship and growing in your faith that we produce. We have everything from sermons online to daily devotionals to conferences and events to books on Amazon, uh, lots of different things that we do uh, and that I have a part of leading. Um, so thank you guys for letting me be here. I actually came up yesterday. Uh, I went uh, to the Tennessee game. It's a good day to be a Vol. Can I, can I get an amen on that? It's a good day to be a Vol. Um, for the folks at the Knoxville campus, I hope there's still a city left standing. Uh, I'm, I'm sure people celebrated long into the night. Um, I don't want to take credit where no credit's due, but um, I'm going to at least say this. I think I may have had something to do with yesterday's win. Uh, I went to the game yesterday, but before we went to the game, uh, we actually went to the hotel uh, here at the Hilton uh, Airport uh, Hotel. And I went to check in early and they're like, oh, we can't check in until later. And I was like, oh, that's not a problem. Can, can I use the bathroom? And they're like, yeah. So as I'm going to the bathroom, the whole Florida football team was standing out there. And I went in with my Tennessee pullover on right through the middle of the team. And I think it was just for them an omen of the things that were coming for them uh, yesterday. So, you know, I don't want to take credit, but I was pretty much the 12th man yesterday, guys. So at least I like to tell myself that. Um, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go to Luke 7. We're going to get there in a moment. But I want you to think about this as you make your way there this morning. I think you'll agree if you think about your own life and your own circumstances and situations your own past, your own history, that when life is going well for us, when circumstances are going well, when things are going smooth, when it feels like, you know, everything's kind of falling in place, you're not dealing with any real trials or circumstances that you wouldn't prefer, that it's easy to trust God in those seasons. It's easier, if you would. When everything's going the way we want, when everything seems to be going smooth, it's easy for us to trust God. We feel like we're in a position and place where, you know, it's like, yes, you know, the Lord's answered my prayers and things seem to be going well. What I have discovered as a pastor and as somebody with a heart that in my own life and those who I have often led, that it's when we go through trials that we discover what our faith and trust in God actually looks like. It's when we go through suffering, it's when we go through afflictions, it's when circumstances are not what we would want them to be that we actually find ourselves struggling to trust God. It's, it's in those moments when the relationship's not mending, when the marriage continues to struggle, when the anxiety won't go away no matter how much you prayed about it. It's in those moments when you get the health diagnosis or you've been struggling with some kind of crippling or chronic pain. It's in those moments where we lose someone we loved and you could just go down all the way through all the types of circumstances that you and I go through in life. It's in those moments that we find out how much do we really trust God? How much do we really, really find ourselves relying on Him and confident in Him? See, what I've discovered about my own heart and in those that I lead is it's in those moments where those things are happening and they're not changing 
that we begin to see what our faith is actually made of. It's in those moments we often will find ourselves struggling. It's in those moments where we'll find ourselves doubting, where we're asking the Lord to do some things in our lives and it seems that they're not happening. So the name of my message this morning, and it's gonna seem like an, abru- like a, an abrasive title, but it's one I want you to begin to wrestle with, is this, what do you do when Jesus leaves you? What do you do when Jesus leaves you? What I mean by that is when Jesus leaves you in that circumstance that you've been praying would change. What do you do when he leaves you in that trial, in that affliction, when the marriage isn't getting better, when the chronic pain isn't healing, when the anxiety and depression aren't lifting? What do you do when he leaves you in it? What most of our hearts tend to say when you hear that question is, oh, I'll I'll trust him, I'll trust God. Oh, you know, in those moments, if that happens for my life, I'll trust him, I, I won't waver, I'll stand firm. And yet I want you to recognize that it's often when those moments come and we're left in those circumstances that we struggle the most. In fact, here's the question that I want you to wrestle with this morning. What happens when you've pleaded with the Lord to change your circumstance and he chooses to leave you in that circumstance? What is your response then? What is your faith then? What does your trust level look like then when you pleaded for the Lord to change this circumstance and he leaves you in that circumstance? And we're going to begin to examine that question through the passage that I just mentioned a moment ago, Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up or turn them on your phone or iPad, or you can see it here on the screen. We're going to be looking at how even John the Baptist found himself struggling. Let's look together, beginning in verse 18. It says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. So let's stop and get some context here. All these things refers to all the miracles and healings and works of Jesus. At this point in Jesus's ministry, he's done some incredible things. We've seen him heal the person with the withered hand. We've seen the lepers cleanse. We've seen the centurion servant made well. The, the, Jesus is you know, says, hey, take me to him and I'll heal him. And the centurion says, oh no, Lord, you're a man with authority and power. I know how that works. You simply say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus says, go, he'll be healed. And he was. Right before we get to this passage, we actually see that Jesus heals a widow's son. Uh, I'm sorry, raises a widow's son from the dead. So, so all of these things includes all of the, the signs and the wonders of Jesus's works. They go and report all of these things to him. Who's him? Well, it's John the Baptist. And why are they having to report those things? Because John is in prison. John is in a prison cell. And do you remember why he's in a prison cell? Because he had cried out against the unlawful marriage of King Herod. He had married, he had um, married somebody by the name of Herodotus. He, 
it was an unlawful marriage. He had ended a previous marriage without any biblical reason to. And John the Baptist is, is calling out publicly against this. Side note, by the way, um, in a world that's gone mad and more and more less grounded in God's word, or maybe even more and more in hatred of God's word, when you and I cry out the truth of what God says about things happening in the world, don't be shocked when we get repercussions for that. We see it right here. John cries out against the unlawful marriage of Herod and it puts him in jail. So he's in jail. And his disciples report all of these things that Jesus is doing to him. Verse 19, John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, sends them to give a message to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? I want you to think about that question and who's asking it. John the Baptist sends his disciples and he says, you go ask Jesus this question. Are you the one who's to come? Are you the one we've been waiting on? Or should we be looking for another one? If you don't understand why that question is so astounding, is because John the Baptist's very life and existence was for the purpose of announcing the coming of the Messiah. His whole life existed to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the one who, when he was in his mother's womb, when Elizabeth was in the presence of Mary and John was in his mom's womb and Jesus was in his mom's womb, it says that John leapt in the womb of Elizabeth because he was in the presence of Jesus. This is the one who is baptizing people and announcing that the kingdom of the, of the Lord is, is at hand. Repent and believe, prepare the way of the Lord. This is the one who, when he sees Jesus coming to him, says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one when Jesus says, you need to baptize me. John says, no, 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 Lord, that's backwards. You should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And Jesus says, no, do this so all things can be fulfilled. This is the one who said, he must increase and I must decrease. This is the one who said, I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. And now he's the one asking, Jesus, are you the one we were waiting for or should we be looking for someone else? What in the world has brought John to that place? What in the world has led John who exists for this very reason to be asking this question? Well, here's why, because John is in prison. And while John's been in prison, Jesus has been going and doing all these incredible things that John's disciples have just reported to him. All of these miracles, all of these signs, all of these wonders, all of this teaching with authority and with power. And the one thing that Jesus hasn't done is the thing that's causing John to stumble. And what is that thing? Getting him out of jail. He's left him there. In fact, at this point, John's been in this prison cell somewhere between seven to 10 months. 
He's been there a few days and you would think he's thinking, yeah, they're go- Jesus is gonna come get me, right? This is the Messiah. This puppet king of Rome's not gonna hold me here if the Messiah's here, if the king of kings is here. And weeks becomes a few months and a few months is getting close to a year now. And here he sits while he hears about all these things that Jesus is doing. And the question you would have to think is, why hasn't he gotten me? This is not how John thought he was going to see all this play out. When the Messiah showed up, he thought he'd be on the front lines with him. The kingdom's come. God's Christ is here. And John is not on the front lines. He's in the jail cell. And no one's come to get him. We have a similar parallel story in in some ways with Joseph in the story um, in Genesis. You know, Joseph, his story covers like the last third of the book of Genesis. And in there, we see that Joseph's brothers betray him by selling him. And then Potiphar's wife lies about him and maligns his character. He gets thrown into prison and there he sits in prison for several years. An innocent man, a just man who, whose brothers are jealous, who, who Potiphar's wife lies about him and yet he sits unjustly in jail. And we get no scripture testimony that says Joseph ever doubted God or his goodness. In fact, the only thing we know about what Joseph thought about it all is when he was finally at the right hand of of power and he revealed his true character to his brothers, what did he say to them? He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. In other words, all of these things that have happened to me, God was at work in them. Even though you were doing unlawful, sinful things, God was at work at the same time. So Joseph's theology wasn't such that said, oh, God has abandoned me, God's forgotten me, God must not love me. It's a wonderful example of suffering while you trust the Lord. He must be at work. But now we've got John the Baptist questioning, are you the one? Jesus, are you the one that we thought you were or should we be looking out for someone else? Friends, here's a point you need to catch. Nobody is beyond struggling with doubt when trials and pain come. Earlier when I asked you, what do you do when Jesus leaves you in that circumstance? The reason that's such a struggle, the reason that's such a difficult thing is when we're in the middle of pain and we're pleading with the Lord, please take this, please remove me from this. And he doesn't, and he's got the power to. If he has the power to do it and he loves me, why would he not change this? The strongest believers, guys, can struggle with doubt when pain and and trials come. We see it here with John. John is just like us. We tend to elevate, you know, people of the Bible up as if they weren't sinners in need of a savior. John was just like us. He, He needs a redeemer too. He needed Jesus too. And just like us, he had the capacity to struggle in the middle of affliction. And what was his struggle based on? The Lord wasn't rescuing him. The Lord did not remove him from his trial. Let's look at verses 20 and 22. It says, and when the men had come to him, come to Jesus. So this is John's disciples delivering the message that John sent. When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, 
Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour, in that hour, right then, in that moment, he, Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them. So in that hour, he did those things in their presence. And then he answered them and he said to this, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Seen for yourself and have heard of what others have said. Go and tell him the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. John's disciples arrive to Jesus and they say, uh, Jesus, we have a message from John. Um, he wants to know, are you the one who we're supposed to be waiting on or should we be looking for someone else? And Jesus says, well, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. And in that hour, he begins to do these things in their presence. He says, you go tell John what now you've seen and go tell him what you've heard and watch. What things does he repeat to them? He repeats the things from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 that were the foreshadows of what the Messiah's work would be marked by. You go tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame are walking. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf are hearing. The dead are raised up. The, good, the poor had the good news preached to them. These are all the things that the prophets foretold the Messiah would do. In other words, Jesus says, you go tell him what you've seen and heard that fulfills all the prophets said about the Messiah. And you could, here we go. Eric, the Eric Reed dumb it down uh, summary. Yes. Yes, I'm the one who is to come. Yes. But Jesus isn't finished. He then says this. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What does he mean by that? What does Jesus mean by blessed are you when you're not offended by me? Here's what it means. Here's what it means. It means we are blessed by the Lord when Jesus's will, what he wills to do, what he chooses to do, how he intends and acts. We're blessed when Jesus's will doesn't cause us to stumble when it clashes against the expectations we have of him. Jesus says, blessed are you if you're not offended by me. What do you mean when we're not offended by you, Jesus? I mean, when I choose to do this and your expectation of me was that I needed to do this, what are you gonna do with that gap? What are you gonna do with that gap? when I choose to leave you in that cell and your expectation of me was I was gonna come rescue you from that cell. What do you do with that gap? When what you expected of me is not what I do. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, who doesn't stumble over me. Guys, this is a challenge straight to our hearts. 
Because let's just be honest. When we pray and ask the Lord to take us from a circumstance, a trial, an affliction, we have an expectation that he would move. We think that God ought to be rescuing us from our affliction. If God loves me and has the power to do all things, when I ask, Lord, lift this, lift this anxiety from me, and he doesn't. Heal this marriage, and it's slow. Heal this disease. Restore my child back into our home. Help me to get through this semester. I'm overwhelmed. And he chooses to let you remain in that. What do you do then? You see, for a lot of people in our world today, when the Lord's actions and our expectations are not in alignment with each other, this is where many have crisis of faith. This is where many begin to doubt the goodness of God. Many begin to question the presence of God, the realness of God, because our expectation is, is he must move in alignment with our, our desires. And, and the moment that the Lord does different, the moment that the Lord chooses a different direction, we struggle. Friends, listen to me and please hear the heart behind this. The Lord does not rule the world with a gaze toward us. He's not ruling the world and looking over to us to make sure we're okay with it, right? God's not like, okay, I'm doing these things. Eric, are you cool with that? Hey, I, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm working this, but Eric, you're good, right? He's not ruling the world with a gaze toward our approval. As if he needed me to be on board with the plan before he goes, like, like he has to check off with me. Like, we good? We good? Oh, okay. I'm gonna do this. Eric's good. But that's what we want. We want the Lord to move. We want the world to rule like that. And, and this is the, the struggle. You see, John the Baptist will never leave this cell alive. He will lose his head. His role and his place in the kingdom fulfilled its purpose. And the Lord took him to himself. John wants out of the prison cell. He's struggling with why he's still in it. Jesus, are you the one or should we be looking for another? Because here's what I want to be doing right now, Lord. Here's what I thought my role would look like in this, in this coming of the kingdom and power. And I'm here. Jesus says, blessed are you when you're not offended by me. John would die in the prison. This is a hard thing to wrestle with, guys. And, and I'm sharing this to you not as just some theological lesson disconnected from real life experience. For me, this is not playing armchair quarterback stuff. It's not ivory tower, yeah, just get your theology right and deal with it kind of thing. This has been something my own family has had to wrestle with. Our firstborn son, we were 24 years old when we had him and he was born 10 weeks premature. He had a bad kidney, had cysts all over it. We were told we got to get this kidney out and once it's out, life will be normal for you guys. And you know, as first time parents, super young, we had never had any issues in our lives. We had never had any real suffering or afflictions. 
And, and I'll be honest with you guys, like if I can just be very transparent with you, I kind of walked around with this really unspoken, loose theology that as long as I loved the Lord and tried to give my life to serve him and pursued him, that he was supposed to just keep things kind of clean in my life, right? I know y'all are way too spiritually mature to ever think like that, but I thought like that. I did. And all of a sudden we we're thrown into a situation, but it would only get worse. He had the surgery two months after he was born within 18 hours of the surgery, we knew something was wrong. And remember the surgeon coming and talking with us and he said, it's unfortunate, but we accidentally removed the good kidney with his bad kidney. And your reaction is, is a good picture of how we were in that moment. How, how could that happen? What do you mean? And our world was thrown upside down. The next two years would be surgery after surgery after surgery, dialysis, trying to get on the transplant list, trying to get qualified to get a, a transplant. And after two years, and after narrowly running out of time, almost running out of time, my son was able to get my wife's kidney at two years old. And then from ages two to 13, Life was somewhat normal, like uh, somewhat, because compared to our first two years, it was, it was way better, but it was still, still wasn't normal. He had all kinds of medications he had to take to suppress that transplant so it didn't reject. And he had respiratory issues that he had to do respiratory therapy every day and all kinds of things. But look, he, but, he, but he was normal, right? I mean, he had a feeding tube to get off his nutrition, but he went to school, he loved hockey. We went to National Predators game. He loved the Vols. God bless him. Terrible, terrible tenure of the Vols during that time. He's like, Dad, why do we like them again? I'm like, I don't know, son. I honestly don't. I don't know why we keep doing this. He went to school. He gamed online with his buddies. He would play basketball online with him, played on his school basketball. Life was normal for us. But we knew that life wouldn't always be normal because he had a kidney transplant and kidney transplants don't last forever. I, I knew in my heart of hearts, there may be a day where I would bury my son before they buried me. I knew that from the moment the surgical mistake happened. And in the midst of all of those things, my family and I are having to learn, what does it look like to trust God in this? Where is God in this? Is he in control of this? What, how should we be praying? How do we learn to live in this cell? In the fall of 2017, my son was 13 years old. He got something called fungal meningitis and he went unconscious for three weeks. He had a stroke. When he finally woke from the coma, he couldn't speak. He lost all of his motor skills. And that led to months and months of being in the hospital followed by months in rehab in Atlanta. He never recovered his speech. He recovered some of his motor skills, but they eventually began to regress because he started to have all kinds of neurological pain that they could never pinpoint the cause or the root of. And the next two years would be absolutely miserable. 
He was 24-hour care. The kid that was screaming at the TV, playing basketball online with his buddies, couldn't even hold a controller in his hand now. And all of it stemmed all the way back to that surgical mistake. Our lives were back in the fire all over again, asking God, will you heal him? Give him his speech back. Ease the pain. Fix it. In November of 2019, he went into the hospital, as he routinely did, with respiratory issues. We would go in and get antibiotics, get him tuned up for a couple of weeks, and then we'd head back home and see how long we could go before we had to go back. That was just life for us. That was just the routine. I said, for this time, we wouldn't bring him home with us. After a couple of weeks of treatments, his lung and lungs were not improving. And I'll never forget the day the doctors came into the room and suggested that he might not get better. And all those things that, as a dad, I had always worried might happen one day, all of a sudden I was living in it. I was right there. We were really talking about this. And on December 1st, 2019, with my wife and my little girls and our family surrounding his hospital bed, we sang him into the presence of Christ. My little boy, who I loved so much, who loved Jesus, who was such a great kid, just passed away at 15 years old. And now, two years later, I can tell you, now we're just in a different kind of cell. Like our worst fear imaginable has become reality for us. Now it's a different thing. It's not fear about what might happen. It's living in what's happened and you have no control to fix or ever change it. And in the middle of all this, and this is why I'm sharing this with you, because when I'm talking about what does it mean to have faith and to trust God when he leaves you in your circumstance, guys, this is not flippant theology for me. This is not hypothetical discussion for me. This is like real life when you're facing hard stuff. How do you cling to God? How do you not find yourself doubting? God, are you for me? Do you love me? Are you with me? Because it's easy to be there. And now it's just a different cell for us. It's the cell of God, will you keep sustaining us and holding us and maintaining our faith in the middle of our grief and our pain and our mourning. When the school year started this year and all of his buddies were at school for their senior year, rips your heart out. Every time I look at a picture of my son and I see my girls with him, they're, they're little girls. They don't look the same now. Time just keeps marching. So how do you trust God in your pain when he leaves you in it? When he keeps you in that thing that you wish more than anything he would take away, what, what do you do? How, how do you keep going? I wanna give you three takeaways this morning that the Lord has taught us. I write about these things in my book, Uncommon Trust. We get into more details about our story and how God really taught us to trust him. But I'm gonna give you three things today that I think could be a help to you. I pray. Number one, surrender in trust. Surrender in trust. What, what, what do I mean by that? I mean, surrender means to say, 
Lord, I, I don't have to try to control this and manage this and I'm not in control. I can't shake my fist at you and say, do this. You must do this. All I can do is empty-handed surrender and say, I'm gonna trust you, God. I'm gonna trust you. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why this isn't changing. I don't know why you haven't answered my prayer in the way that I've asked for it. But I'm gonna trust you. I'm not gonna put you on the witness stand. I'm not gonna play the role of prosecutor and demand you give an accounting. I'm gonna trust you. I know you do all things according to the counsel of your will. I'm gonna trust you. I know that you're working all things for the good of those who love you. I'm gonna trust you, even though I don't get what's happening. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says it like this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, with all of it, none withheld, and do not lean on your own understanding. That's a contrast. You have a choice. You can either trust the Lord with all your heart or you can lean on your own understanding. You can lean on your own, you can lean on what you're able to comprehend. You can, you can lean on what you can make sense of for why God is doing what he's doing. He says, don't do that. Don't lean on your understanding. Why? Because your understanding is about this thick. I mean, guys, think about how unable we are to manage some of the basic aspects of our lives and we're trying to understand why God does what he does. Do not lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Keep your eye on him. Keep looking to him. And what does it say? There's a promise. He will make straight your paths. He will make your path straight. Doesn't mean your path straight is gonna be an easy cush circumstance. That's not what he's saying. This is not a name it and claim it situation. This is not like I'm gonna trust him and that means he's gonna make my path really smooth. No, straight paths doesn't necessarily mean smooth path. It just means he's gonna get you where he intends to get you. And ultimately that means to the finish line. But will you trust him? Surrender in trust. Number two, Lean on his grace. Lean on his grace. Friends, listen. Every day, every day, my hope for making it through a day, the way that I'm able to love my sweet wife through her grief and pain and my little girls is we just keep leaning on the grace that God gives us day by day by day. We lean on it. We depend on it. We seek it. We hold our hands out for it. God, help me today. Listen, I don't need tomorrow grace, guys. I don't need next week grace. I don't need next month grace. You know what I need? I need today's grace. I need help for today. Why are you worried about tomorrow, Jesus said? It's got enough problems. You need today grace and he'll give it to you. Our savior Jesus is the giver of all sufficient grace. When Paul pleaded three times, would you please take this thorn from my flesh, this messenger of Satan, would you please remove it? I mean, you think about Paul. Paul wasn't a complainer. Paul didn't make this request often. You read 2 Corinthians 11, his resume of suffering is unbelievable unreal what he went through. And never once do we see him asking 
the Lord to make it better, to change it, to avoid it. You would think when now Paul prays three times, Lord, please remove this thorn, whatever that thorn is. I think, I mean, I do. Again, I won't speak for you, but I think when I read that, I think the Lord's response should be, you know what, I got you. You've been through a lot. You know, Paul never asked. Let's give him this one, guys. And instead, you know what Jesus' response was to him? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, Paul says, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. What does Jesus say to Paul? He doesn't say, I'm gonna change your circumstance. You know what he says to him? I'll be enough for you in your circumstance. I'll keep you. I'll hold you. I'll sustain you. Yeah, but I really want that thorn gone. I know you do. I know you do. Friends, I know that there's nothing more you want than for that affliction, that pain, that trial to be gone. We don't like to suffer. We don't want to be in it. God knows that. But this is what Jesus says. I'll give you the grace you need. I'm enough. Friends, please hear this today. I don't know all the things that you're dealing with today. I don't know what all you're going through, but Jesus's promise to Paul is a promise to you. His grace is sufficient for you. And that won't make, listen, listen, that won't make painful things less painful. His all-sufficient grace doesn't give me my son back. But you know what it does? It sustains me in the loss of my son. It keeps me, it holds me. My faith is intact because his grace is sufficient. And it'll be sufficient for you as well. The third final word I would give to you is this. Remember his promises. And maybe I could even say it like this, rehearse his promises. Rehearse them to your heart. Remember them, but recite them, rehearse them, preach them to yourself. Do you know the most important preaching I do every week is not the preaching I do to my church, it's the preaching I do to my heart. Guys, listen, I have to remember what God has said. That's what sustains me. One of the first promises I will recite to myself is the one we just said. His grace is sufficient for me. Eric, God will be enough for you today. Jesus will be enough for you today. I know your heart is hurting extra today. I know the tears have rolled down in succession today. He's enough though. Keep putting the next foot in front of the other. He's enough. Oh, and remember this, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Your son is with him. He's before the face of Christ. No more sickness, no more inability to speak. No more broken body. He's with him. He's whole. And remember, Eric, Jesus is coming again. He promises us. And he's going to come and make all things new. He's going to put the world to rights. The dead will be raised. Our bodies will be made new. And we'll live in the kingdom of Christ forever. And I hold that promise because you know what? It's the promise that I have that while I will never see my son again on this side of eternity, I will see him again. 
because of Christ. And you know what keeps sustaining me in a world broken, filled with wickedness and evil and sin and hurt? It's the promises of God. Why do Christians grieve differently than the world? It's not because we don't experience pain. It's not because we don't hurt. It's not because we don't get left in the cell. It's because we know the end of the story. It's because we believe our God when he says, I am doing a great work. I will bring what I promised to completion. I will keep you. I will sustain you. I'm a very present help in times of need. I will make your path straight. I will make all things new. I will carry you home. My grace will be sufficient for you. And we cling to that. And what rises in our hearts is hope, not despair, when we're left in the cell. Because we know that even if they take our head, we'll be with the Lord. And we're not left to ourselves. The world is not spinning chaotically out of control. Our God reigns. So trust him, surrender to him, friends, in the middle of all you're going through, rather than waving the fist to say, are you the one that's supposed to come or should I be looking for somebody else? Are you the one that's really the redeemer of the world or should I be looking elsewhere? Are you really the one who says you love me or should I be looking elsewhere? Why am I still here? No, friends, trust him, surrender. Okay, Lord, I'm, I trust you. I don't know why I'm here, but I trust you. And lean on his grace. Keep me, God, sustain me, God deepen my faith even when I don't understand why and remember his great promises to you they will sustain you until the day you see him face to face let's pray together oh God we do need you our hearts struggle so so much under the heaviness of pain and sorrow and grief. We want so badly to escape from under afflictions. And often our expectation is, is if we ask that you would remove them, that you should, maybe even that you must, which is why we often struggle when you choose to leave us in the struggle. Oh Lord, our view and our perception is so limited you know all you see all your ways are higher than our ways your thoughts are higher than our thoughts God I pray today that someone gathered in this room or at the Knoxville campus as they hear these words would be strengthened today to know that you are with them even in the cell you are with them God if anything that I pray our story would prove that even if the worst imaginable fear became reality for them, you are still enough for them in the fire. God, I can testify that you are. And you always will be. Strengthen your people this morning to believe those things, to trust you, to lean upon your grace, and to remember your promises in this world. We love you, Lord. Jesus, thank you that because of your death and resurrection, we have eternal hope, even in the midst of pain. We pray these things in your great name. Amen. 
Thank you so much for watching this video. We'd love for you to like the video and leave a comment. And we also encourage you to subscribe and click the bell so you never miss a post from Foothills Church. To learn more about FC, just head to our website by going to foothillschurch.com or by clicking the link in the description below.